there's so many good high-level athletes who never win a gold medal, who never win a national championships. This is not the analogy we're making. We're talking about your ability to improve from what you were doing previously. And that's why we, we're wanting to give examples of people who are at the top of their – it's hard to beat people. It's hard to beat 20 people who are all equally as good. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. today's episode, a 23-year-old Aussie runs 47 ultra marathons in a row across Australia. We review some of Kona, the Kona World Championship performances and we're really excited to bring a new segment we're going to be doing on the podcast, telling great sporting stories. And the first is the story of Emil Zatopek, the man who changed running with five Olympic medals, 18 world records to his name and the innovator of interval training throughout a very tumultuous period of World War II. This is a story worth hearing about. Dad, Welcome to another exciting episode. Let's start. What is your your what is your gratitude for the week? Um, thanks, George. This is a this is going to be fun. Um, delving into um, yeah, the career of Zatopek. For those who don't know him, it'll be um, it's it's pretty eye opening, and that's kind of what my gratitude's based on. Um, when I was thinking about the podcast we were going to do on him, um, I was thinking about the risks that he was willing to take to become the best person that he could be as a person, as an athlete, as a human being. And, and he was just – was so accepting of I'm not going to repeat the same stuff that I've done before if it's not working. If it's working well, I'll carry on with it. But if it's not, I need to change something. And, and that's kind of what my gratitude is for the people who, who are really on board with us who are willing to change their ways and whether they've been doing it for two years or 20, they're just willing to trust the process and and just completely change everything about that, what they've been doing, what they think is, has been right for their potential improvement. And the reason they're reaching out is because they want to get better. And I suppose on the negative side, those people who reach out who want to get better and aren't willing to change, they're the opposite to what I'm talking about. I'm grateful for the people who join us and and completely are willing to change everything. And and I I've got to I ask myself this: what why would I be reluctant to change if what I've been doing hasn't helped me improve? And and that's that's kind of I'm grateful, but disappointed in others who who want to to improve but don't want to change anything about what they're doing and want to do the same old stuff um and and that kind of that kind of frustrates me a bit but but i don't want to take away from the gratitude that we're talking about the people who do succeed with us are the ones who are willing to 100 percent commit to change and they're not fearful of it um why Why are we feel – as human beings, we don't like change. We're reluctant to change. I've experienced this in so many different fields. Um, you get comfortable. You get, you get used to it. It's what I do. That's what I do on Tuesday. I'm comfortable with that. I don't want to be out of my comfort zone. I'm not sure why, but there is a reason. It's because you fear that you're going to be tested or there is a failure factor there. 
Um, and so that that change of whether you're changing your job at work or whether you're changing houses or changing cars or changing your training program, we are kind of questioning, is this the right thing to do? You've you really got anxiety about it. You've got fear. Um, and it's normal human reaction. And, and I've experienced it many times myself. I'm really comfortable in what I'm doing, where I'm doing it, and the routine that I've got. And and we all also talk about having good routines. But, but sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone and try something new and be prepared to fail. That is the key thing because you will absolutely learn more from the failures than you will from your successes. And and I can testament to that because I've done so many failures in my journey as a coach and as an athlete, um, as a human being, as a dad, as a a brother and a son. You know, I've got failings. But but uh, if the the problem is if you're not willing to change, then you do have a problem. Um, and so I'm really grateful for the fact that. When people decide to join us, they're accepting. It's almost like you go into confession. Okay, uh, what I've been doing hasn't been working and now I'm willing to do my penance, which is you tell me what to do and I'll, you just tell me how high to jump and I'll do it. And And I love that. And that's what I'm grateful for is the people who come on board and who are just going to do whatever it takes to – and look, if you don't, if you do 90% or a version of what we give you, you're not 100% sure at the end or, or any way along the journey whether it's going to be completely effective because the only way to test something is to do it properly. If you half do it, you're not going to sure with, you're not sure when the outcome happens what was good or what was bad about it because you didn't do it 100%. Um, you've done a version of it, so therefore you can't actually say it did or didn't work. The only way you can say this did not work is if you do it properly 100%. If you do a version of it, the bits you miss could be the bits that caused you not to, to succeed. So so it's a funny gratitude. I know it's got both negative and positive connotations, but, but I am the majority of people who come to us, they've got to that point where I stuff this, I can't improve. I'm I'm going to go almost to the dark side and and <laughs> sell my soul and just trust trust in the process and because one of the things that as humans we will gravitate to success that in the minutes the minute your football team whether it's soccer cricket football basketball the minute they're successful everybody wants to know how they were successful what did they do and they want to copy it you know the Norwegian method in triathlon. If they weren't winning, no one would be worried about them, but they're dominating. So we want to learn and gravitate to the six successful people. So, so you know, when you're experimenting with new stuff, like we'll find out with Zatopec, it's hard to trust that process because it hasn't been successful yet and you're breaking new ground. So, you know, even it's more admirable to see these type of people succeed. That's why it's gold that the Norwegians are doing what they're doing because they weren't sure about whether it was going to be successful or not. But boy, everybody's pretty sure now that this is an unbelievable, successful way to train and race. Finally, funnily enough, it is easier when a new athlete joins Travelo because you say to them, look, it's worked for hundreds of athletes before you. So, <laughs> so you do have a lot more belief. That it's not like you're trying something new. But it is one of our Travelo principles. And we have a lot of principles that we really instill in our athletes when they come and train under us and get coached by us and do our coaching programs because it's not just about the training, it's about the mindset around it all. And one of them is trust the process and embrace the change. And we really draw that in because you have to have that mindset to do exactly what you're saying, to do something new um, and try something new in the hopes that it gets you the result you want. And I really like that question that you said 
why why do we fear change? Why do we resist it? I personally believe that one of the reasons we don't do things is because we don't truly believe that the outcome will get us the result we want. Because if we truly believe that, then we would do it, no doubt. You know, if you knew for a fact with 100% certainty that this session will get you the result you want with your FTP, you would do it. And unfortunately, you never can know that 100%. And so, you're going to have to take some sort of risk and say, okay, well, I don't know for sure, but it looks like all these other people have had success with it. So, I'm going to trust the process and embrace the change. So, I really like that uh, line of gratitude and questioning. My gratitude is a similar theme to the uh, topic of the episode with Emil Zadapek. And I am grateful also for innovators and for people who are willing to, uh, to, yeah, to make the changes for us and create solutions to problems. And mine's a little bit more specific, but I've been surfing out in the water a lot um, in some pretty dirty water, which I shouldn't have done in the first place, but I ended up getting an ear infection from doing it. And it was a disaster. It really affected me quite uh, harshly, the ear infection. And then my ears are all better and I want to go out surfing again, but the water's still dirty, but I still want to be able to surf. And so, I'm grateful for people who invented earplugs and eardrops because now you can you can flush your ears out before the surf with some eardrops. You wear earplugs to protect your ears. And then when you come out, you flush your ears out again with these aqua drops and it um, keeps the ear clean. So, I'm really grateful for the innovators who invented that. It allows me to keep surfing, which I really, really enjoy. Moving on to the next segment, what has caught your attention in the world of sport for the week? Yeah, and uh, I know we do bang on about our hero, Lionel. Um, <laughs> and for those of you who didn't see what happened at uh, at, at the World Championships in Kona, um, he had one of the worst uh, events and he's had many bad events at Kona, by the way. Um, he has come second at Kona. Um, but he he doesn't mind um, doing videos or whatever you call it. Um, Interviews, vlogs, yeah. Vlogs. Um, and he, he wears his heart on his sleeve. There's no doubt about that. And I think that's what I love about, about him. He, he He's not holding back. He's telling the truth. He's transparent. Um, so what's caught my attention is when he had a poor result, he fronted up to the camera to have to explain himself, and can you, you know, can you imagine you, you've you've put yourself out there? I want to win this race, and you end up coming nowhere. You are, you know, you're basically walking the marathon. But he finished to his credit. Um, he just had one of the one of the worst days you could possibly have. And and when you prepare so well and so, he has a great team around him. He's, he's embraced yeah. change. Yeah, yeah. He, he, you know what we're talking about. He's done. He's changed his whole training um, mythology. Um, which I'm absolutely excited about, and so are you. And and I think that's what we love about him. He's 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 got to a really good level as a triathlete. The top, he's right at the top. He's won many good races. Um, um, championship races are the ones that he wants to dominate in, and that's that's why he's you know gone to the next level to get all of the people surrounding him that he thinks can take him there. And and the thing that um, that's caught my attention is. It's not always successful. You don't always have successful campaigns. Even if you think that you've been the well, the most prepared you've ever been in your life, there's no guarantee that you're going to get the right outcome. And and I think I've learned that lesson a lot over the journey is, you know, there will be a reason, an explanation as to why you don't get the outcome and, and it's hard to take. But, but, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be um, the same person in victory as you are in defeat and you've you've got to you've got to take the humbly take the the glory of victory and and 
respectfully praise those who beat you when you're when you when you're defeated and and not shy away from it. And I just love the way he goes about it. He he is absolutely perplexed as to what went wrong. He's got a few theories, and so have his coaches. And actually, I've got a few theories as well. Um, I just think he raced too much. I think he'd done too many Ironmans. I think he said he'd done. You know the stats better than I will, but in the space of eight Ironmans in fifteen months. And he also thinks that his training race simulations meant he'd probably done another six or seven. So, he'd almost done one Ironman a month for 15 months. Plus, he'd done 70.3s as well. Um, Collins Cup, um, um, the PTO PTO events. and um, So, you just mentioned Ironmans, but he'd Mm -hmm. done way more events in between that. And that's a great lesson, and I think that's the standout. And you know how we always say there's never one reason. There's always a, a, a majority of things happen because of one reason, but there will be a whole lot of little things that will tip you over. And it could have been that, you know, he, he raced well at St. George in Utah at the World Championships. He came second, you know. That was only – how many months ago was that? Six, six was months that ago, yeah. Six yeah. months ago? Seven, seven months ago, yeah. No, it was Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it shows you he he has the ability to perform well, but it just didn't happen on the on the day. And and I think uh, it's a really good message to to every age grouper out there who thinks that they're going to perform every single time, uh, even the very best of the best. Um, you know, no matter how well prepared they think they are, they can still have a bad performance that c- can maybe not be explained. And it's how you deal with those performances that I think is the measure of the person, male or female. Um, you know, if if you don't go away sulking and woe is me, and he's not doing that at all. He's 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 owning up to, I did something wrong. I've made mistakes. We've we've done something wrong, um, as in his team. Um, and, and I just love the way. He's going about this and what's caught my attention is I think he will be better off from this outcome down the track. This will be – it'll either – two things are going to happen, which is probably obvious. It'll it'll break him and he'll never never perform well again or he this will make this will make the, the man into a championship winner um, and, and he'll think twice about his program um, uh, scheduling um, and and I think that's a key thing. You can you can not race enough, and then you can over race yourself. Um, and it's a fine line. It's a tough one. Um, but you know the best form of training is racing. But too much train, too much racing is is just going to flatten you to a point where he could he felt shocking on the bikes right from the outset, and that shouldn't be the case, you know. But he felt shocking in the lead up. So, and everybody's saying it was it was in his mind, and you know he knows his body, and that's another point. He knows his body better than anybody, and he's trying to tell all of his surrounding help that there's something not right, and they're saying, oh, you're thinking too much about it, you're putting too much pressure on yourself. But in actual fact, in hindsight, he was 100 percent right. Mm. <laughs> he was he was training himself into a hole. No um, one believed him, including us, because we watched those videos. And he's just going, "I just, I feel like crap. I'm hitting the numbers. His lactate levels are all good." And he said, "I just feel disgusting." And we kind of agreed with the coaches, where they were saying, "It's just one, it's just one session where you feel like that, you know, compared to everything else that's been going well." But like you said, he was right. Yeah. So that's what's caught my attention. I think it's a great lesson for us um, that even the people at the top of their tree um, can have bad outcomes and. And, you know, you just got to deal with them. And we don't want to see that happen, but it, it is going to come your way eventually. So, you know, 
we all aim and try and prepare and plan to to get the best possible outcome and the majority of times it does that's the way it goes um for the people that we're in charge of um the majority of times it doesn't go that way for the rest of the triathlon field they're always doing the same result or worse but um but you know it is important to understand that um that it's not always there's going to be things that don't gel and and just be okay with that and live to fight another day and I love the way he didn't blame anyone else. He didn't blame any external factors and he didn't blame his coaching staff or his team. You know, he said, we went into it like this. We messed it up, you know, and he's saying, and we'll learn from it. And there was no animosity towards his coaching staff where he was going, I told you so. And there was none of that. And it was, uh, I just really found that also a great part of the story because he's he's in there with his team and yeah, they one of them will make mistake. He will make mistake himself as the athlete. The coaches might make mistakes, and that's okay. They're all just willing to learn together and move forward, and not not play a blame game on anyone. And I, I really like that. Uh, I just wanted to quickly mention uh, in the female category because we did pick two potential winners. We wanted Lionel to win, and that was an absolute disaster. And we picked Lucy Charles, which was looking like it was she was going to do it. She was going to come out as the underdog, underprepared, like you said, no mental pressure. She led from the start. Um, and she was in front on the run and then barring a insane run from Chelsea Sodaro, which no one could have predicted. Um, I know she's an absolute gun runner, but uh, no one could have predicted her to come through the field and pass Lucy Charles and win the race and become world champion. Uh, Lucy Charles looked like she was on her way and she gets another second place, which is every year she's lost to previous world champions, you know, Daniela Reef multiple times and she'd beaten all those people that she was supposed to beat before it's just no one predicted Chelsea Sodaro to come through and win so that was that was very fascinating race to watch and it was awesome and uh, it was a great race by Lucy Charles regardless given where she's come back from yeah it was wasn't it exceptional both male and female races were riveting and how how I could be sitting there twice during the you know in seven days and watch a race from start to finish, um, trying to do work <laughs> around it, um, I I just can't believe it. It is, it is an eight hour thing that you're trying to watch, and and it was just captivating. Um, you know the the way the women's race panned out. You, you know there was so many things happening, and and even Lucy Charles Barkley getting chased down and getting passed by Chelsea Sodaro, but third place was also chasing Lucy oh, Charles. Oh yeah. yeah, and and she got within twenty seconds. And and this is where I was so impressed with Lucy Charles Barkley. She could have capitulated there and just come third, but she just lifted and hung on and and stayed twenty seconds ahead from the last five k out and and ended up holding on to second place, which was outstanding uh, considering the lack of training and preparation she had going into the event. I, I just think her her will and desire to to compete is is really oh, that showed out even though she didn't win boy that was outstanding i absolutely agree with that look we said we weren't going to go on about this too long but there's <laughs> one more thing i want to talk about with the world champs and that's uh i loved your insight i asked you what you thought of when gustav uh who was the winner passed sam Laidlow uh, on the run and Laidlow had a six minute head start going into the run leg and gustav slowly but surely and christian slowly but surely crawled their way back before gustav broke away from christian and he passed him and he was going at a much faster pace. Um, and I said, what did you think of him? You know, it was great sportsmanship. He clapped him on the back, gave him a handshake. They gave each other a high five. I said, what did you think of that? Because it's so great to see sportsmanship in sports. Uh, but also, this is your world championship and Gustav is a ruthless competitor. Um, 
you know, would you just want them to focus on racing? I was just asking you these questions, just what you thought on it. And you said, make no mistake, um, in an Ironman, you are not changing pace. So what he does when he goes past him then doesn't matter because he's running his pace. Sam's, Gustav's running his pace. Sam's running his pace. They're not changing. So it's in, in your head, you said it was great to see that sportsmanship because there's no way Sam Laidler is going to hang on to him in an Ironman. And I just thought that was a really great insight into what's actually happening at that level of event. There's no, there's no mindset where Sam Laidler is suddenly going to be able to lift his pace and, and start running Gustav's pace. Well, he tried for 10 seconds. <laughs> he he ran, into the, ran in behind his slipstream and gave 10 seconds worth of effort. And then within 40 more seconds, he was 100 meters behind him. Because he just realized after 10 seconds, I will not finish second if I change pace right now. Christian will pass me. So I've got to go back to what I was doing and I'm holding off Christian. So, you know, I can't keep up with Gustav's pace. I can't change pace. I'll end up coming fifth. Um, and, and And I won't beat Gustav because he's already caught me in 2K. He's put a minute and a half into me. Um so yeah, so it sounds it sounds like it's all good and proper, but it's it's actually you know both athletes know that that's an unsustainable pace. I've got to do what I'm doing. Yep. One more question on the sportsmanship thing. It came out that um, a couple of the guys were um, riding way harder in the pack than the whole pack anticipated the pace would be, and they were really burying themselves a little bit and Gustav was holding them and then one of the guys said to Gustav, oh no, we've got a 10-minute penalty or a five-minute penalty so we're overriding because of that Um, and you found that pretty interesting as well that that would give him that information because he was trying to hang on to them going, shit, I don't know if I can, excuse my language, I don't know if I can um, sustain this pace and then they told him what was happening and so he was able to adjust his race plan which potentially saves him. You know, If he blows himself off on the bike, he's not running that well in the run. Yeah, I just found that astounding, to be honest, um, that the guys who had the time penalty would give that information across. That that's, I don't know whether it's naive or I don't know, I don't know why they did that um, because they've just handed Gustav and Christian a reason to not follow them. Um, whereas before they would be questioning Christian and Gustav would be questioning because Sam Laidler was already up the road. Um, you know, is this another group of guys going to ride away from us? What what are we doing wrong here? Um, they would be starting to question everything about their preparation and what's happening in this race. People are riding away from us. We're supposed to be the gun riders here and yet there's guys who are riding harder than we are and then when someone gives you an explanation as to why, then you change your strategy straight away whereas if they had kept quiet, they would have possibly forced them into their own plan which as you know, I've said on this podcast about my Kona experience where one of the guys i I kind of changed my plan around, had no intentions of running. And I I did exactly that mistake and lifted my riding pace only to find out after the end of the bike ride, which got me in a great position, but I was pretty much blown from riding above my level and the guy tells me he's not not running. And I'm just going, oh, well, that's great now. And had I known that, I would not have chased him. And, and Christian is in exactly the same position. Now he knows that information and he makes a better decision. Um, yeah. So it was in the name tactics. of sportsmanship, but bad tactics, yeah. Bad tactics, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. All right, that's enough for the uh, Kona World Championships. Uh, what has caught my attention was if you're in Australia, you will no doubt seen the young 23-year-old Aussie trading Ned Brockman who took 
the whole of Australia by storm. And I think it's caught everyone's attention this week. And he ran from Perth to Sydney across the entire Australia. Now, Australia covers, if you put Australia on the map of Europe, it covers most of Europe in terms of width. It's just insane how far it is, 4,700 kilometers wide it is. And he ran, but people do that feat on the bike and it's an incredible feat. Uh, He ran it, which was averaged out over 47 days to something around 85 to 100 kilometers a day. So, he's running an ultra marathon every day and he's getting through it. You know, he's not, he's not, slowly running he was averaging between 545 on some days for 80 kilometers to 640 for 100 kilometers and you know he's 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 running along there and you see footage of him and it is absolutely astounding and i honestly still can't get my head around it it just it is so unfathomable it's unfathomable to anyone let alone if you are in running if you're in the sport of endurance and you know these kind of feats it's just I honestly still can't wrap my head around it. And I guess just hats off to him. He did it for homelessness charity. He raised, I think, around or over $2 million by now. Um, the the stories of what he was doing daily. He would do a daily update on Instagram at the end of each day, how far he ran the pace, how he was feeling. And after like a week or two, he already had um, he had almost broken ankles and he just had all sorts of uh, problems. He was doing a journal saying that he feels like every single bone in his body below his waist has arthritis or tendonitis or something. He's in agonizing pain constantly. He had a physio with him on the road, um, masseusing him every break he could get. Uh, just an absolutely astounding effort. I mean, you hear stories of people doing, you know, 50 marathons in 50 days and that's the world record, you know, yet he's doing 47 ultra marathons in a row and I, I don't know if it's like stupid or i don't know if his body will be ruined for for a long time uh, i don't know what the recovery will be like for him supposedly he has some really gruesome injuries right now but big hats off to him it is an inspiring miraculous goosebump worthy effort and my favorite part about the story uh not aside from the fact of how much awareness and money he raised for charity was his mindset he just his some of his taglines were just keep showing up you know, just show up. And I just absolutely love that. Every day, his whole thing was just show up. He's tagline at the bottom, which is a favorite quote of mine for a long time, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, and he was just, he's always saying that the mind is stronger than the body. And every day he was in so much pain and he would he would write in his little Instagram post and say, body is shattered, but head is as strong as ever. And for me, that was just super inspiring that if he can do that, it really you know, lifts your spirits to to be able to go for your, for me, what felt, you know, I went for a pissy little 20 minute run <laughs> the other day. And, <laughs> but I thought, well, geez, he's, he's pretty inspiring to get out there and get your shoes on. It's, uh, it's perspective at its biggest level, isn't it? Um, when you see something doing, see someone doing something exceptional, you, you, it, it's inspiring, but it's also almost belittling to, to what, your concerns are in your little tiny world, and I'm talking about myself here. Um, and you know, you you just think far out. What what can the human being, the human body, withstand? Um, you know, it, there are so many examples, and that's kind of what we're talking about today. Is um, is some of the great feats um, that have happened in history. Um, and so, you know, this is a modern day, you know, brilliant uh, feat. I fe- I feel which. Not, I don't know if anybody will be able to do that. He was going for the world record and he didn't get it. Uh, yeah, the, the record and he didn't get it. And then I sat there thinking, who the hell has the record? <laughs> and it's this ultra mar- German ultra marathon runner who did it in 2005 and ran across Australia and he did it in 44 days or something. He did it three days faster, which to me is just astounding. But this one obviously has a lot more publicity and the whole story is being tracked, which is why it's got a lot of attention. Um, 
yeah, so both both those stories shocked me. And yeah, you're right. I don't know who's wild enough to take that on again. So it's an inspiring story, and another inspiring story that we want to tell, and a big part of this episode is this story of Emil Zadipek, the man who changed running. And I can't wait to get into this. It was uh, we, as a runner, you do know a lot about him, but it was really fun diving into the history books and finding out as much information about him. And uh, we'll take you through uh, who he is and and why he's so important and integral in revolutionising the sport of running. Born in Czechoslovakia in 1922, which is now split up into the Czech Republic and Slovakia, he. Uh, started training seriously as a runner at the age of 18, which is in 1940, because he was working in a shoe factory and the sports coach at the shoe factory got all the workers to run in a race. And at first, he wasn't interested. And this is really fascinating. There's a quote of him where he said, I protested that I was weak and not fit to run, but the coach sent me for a physical examination. The doctor said I was perfectly well, so I had to run. And then once I got started, I felt I wanted to win. But I only came second and that was the way it started. And he's talking about his love for running, his competitiveness and the start of his career. And he was second in this race and supposedly there was about 100 people in there and he's just jumped in and, and done well. And his love for running began. And for the next four years, he developed his own training program modeled off uh, Finnish um, uh, interval training and Swedish fart like training. And he was modeling one of the greatest middle distance runners of all time, Finland's Paavo Nermi. And he was uh, back then, information wasn't ex- as accessible like it is now on social media. We can just get access to Lionel Sanders' uh, exact training program and diary. But he found every bit of information he could on fart like and interval training. Um, and interestingly, Paavo Nermi was uh, one of the first people to introduce the even pace strategy to running. And I found this really fascinating that uh, he was one of the first runners to pace himself with a stopwatch in training. And he was one of the first ones to do our tri-velo principle, Dad, of spreading your energy evenly and uniformly over the race. Uh, and he ran with the stopwatch to make sure that he didn't overexert himself. And he was one of the first ones to come out and say that sprinting at the start is stupid and use a stopwatch to run even pace. And I know you'll love hearing that. Yeah, it's funny because my dad um, just used to talk about um, the runners of the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s to me all the time when he was training me in the – I was born in 59, so I started to to do some training in 1969, 1970, 71, all those early years when I was 10, 11, 12, 13. And and he would tell – dad would tell me these stories and I I don't know, as a 10-year-old, I just loved hearing them. Um, And he would mention the great Emil Zatopek and I knew Zatopek as a 10-year-old and that seems a bit weird, doesn't it? But, um, but, you know, I know of Pavo Normi because my dad would talk about him and and we would do some of the training sessions that Pavo Normi did and we would do them the same way, not allowed to sprint at the start, not allowed to – to, to burn to you know we didn't talk about them as uh, increasing lactate in those days no yeah. one had a clue <laughs> yeah. about that but dad was saying you know you've only got a few matches don't burn them he was talking about that back in 1969 1970 and and then you know understanding championship races where you know you have to sometimes go a little bit harder at the start because every kid you're running against has no idea about pacing yet you do or i do because that's the way I'd been training and and every kid would run the first 150 meters at their best 100 meters sprint and you know dad would say to me let them go just just let them go and, and you know here we are in 800 meters letting someone go who's 50 meters ahead of you 
um, pretty tough to do as a 10-year-old when you're super competitive. Um, and But, you know, it's stories like Pavo Normi and, and Emil Zatopek and Ron Clark and Herb Elliott and he would just rattle off all these guys. And, and this is fun because we're going to talk about a lot of the people that I've grown up knowing and you've, you've learnt about them from just researching. It's great that there's so much information out there about these people. But Zatopek, wow, what a story. And that, I'll let you continue. Yeah, and uh, I'll can continue the story. Basically, over the next four years, uh, he continued to train well, and he ended up uh, just superseding himself as a runner. And he broke the national records in two k, three k, five k as he continued to race more and more. And uh, it was it was only in nineteen forty four, so basically four years after he started, that he started to break these records. And that's a really important point that. I wanted to touch on because we see this pattern a lot in our top performing trivelo athletes. You know, they, they, they get all athletes get some sort of improvement with consistent training, and we see that with diminishing returns. But um, the principle of diminishing returns can sometimes be a little bit demotivating because it feels like you know the longer you go, the less reward you're getting because you know you've got less potential room for benefit for improvement, and so you like we speak about all the time, you you're trying to improve by one watt or two watts at a time, but those those one watt or two watt improvements aren't necessarily the whole story to how good you are as, a, as an athlete as a whole and how strong you are and how strong your base is. And we just see so many athletes really start peaking and reaching their potential after three to four years of seriously consistent training. That's, that's such a key point here. And, and this story follows the exact same pattern where after four years of him seriously training himself, now he starts to break all these national records. And obviously, he was improving the whole way into there, but... This is a really important point for age groupers to think about because we have a lot of age groupers who do this over three, four, five years of consistent training, start to hit numbers that they've never seen before and start performing in races uh, like they never have before. And that shouldn't happen as you're getting older. Technically, you're supposed to get weaker or less fit as you're getting older. But it's a really important pattern to recognize, isn't it? Yeah. And um, don't be uh, put off by the fact that you know we, we're not saying that age groupers will come to us and then start winning races. We're saying you will be a better improved athlete than you were before, and and it might take four years, might take three years for you to to change the habits you've had. Like we talked about earlier in the podcast, be willing to change uh, to get a better result. But it might take you know two years, eighteen months. It might take twelve months. Uh, very rarely does it happen in 16 weeks. You get you get improvement, but not to the level that we're talking about here where, you know, we've had people join us who might have been in the bottom third of their age group, you know, out of 200 competitors, they might have become 160th. And then after 16 weeks, they might be 130th. After a year, they're 90th. After two years, they're 70th. After three years, they're in the top 30 after four years, they're actually vying for the top top 20. And and that's the progress I'm talking about. And that's that's what we're trying to say. It's not, it's not you know, every, there's, some, so, there's so many good high-level athletes who never win a gold medal, who never win a national championships. This is not the analogy we're making. We're talking about your ability to improve from what you were doing previously. And that's why we, we're wanting to give examples of people who are at the top of their – it's hard to beat people. It's hard to beat 20 people who are all equally 
as good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is this is the thing that we're trying to get across here um, that it does take time, and even at the highest level, if you stick at it consistently, you will be a better athlete. Whether that make, makes you the gold medalist at the Olympics or you know you you stay at the top of your tree for longer, it doesn't matter. It's still the the point is improvement. It's another. It's actually another one of our Travelo principles, and it's patience, and it's uh, almost we call it the stop and think principle, or appreciating your progress. And we force athletes to make sure that they stop and think and appreciate their progress as they go. And when you do that, you can objectively see where you've come from consistently. And if you just keep doing that, after one or two or three or four years, um, you're at a point where you you probably couldn't fathom that you would be at compared to the impatient athlete who doesn't stop and think gets frustrated after 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 24 weeks and gets impatient, doesn't stick to the program and they repeat this kind of cycle of stop, start, stop, start because of their impatience and then over two, three, four years, they haven't had that consistency and don't end up to where they could be. Yeah, and and it's it's always easy to look at that in hindsight um, but when you're in the, the cut and thrust of preparing for a race and in the middle of your program it, it is something you want to see you want to see outcomes don't you you know we 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 as humans do better when we're rewarded with improvement um you know naturally we get endorphins released when when we have a satisfying uh, event or training session it, it's it's a good feeling when you know you've succeeded it in one day or one event and so so we're all the time striving for that but you know it's like we're like addicts for for fitness um for for improvement for success um no different to a an addict who's a smoker or or a drinker, you know, you've you've got the same addiction where there's impatience and and you just want things to happen right now, and and that's that's setting yourself up for failure, and and you have to be patient and you have to be uh, trusting the process, and and you know, give hundreds of examples of that, but we don't want to go into that. But let's get on with, with talking about Zadapek and how well he did. So we're in the uh, mid 1940s, and Zadapek is really making a name for himself as a runner. He's breaking national records, he's winning races, and he's really coming along. And don't forget, we're in the middle of World War II here. So just think about how much COVID interrupted the world, and how much COVID interrupted athletes' ability to train and compete. And imagine trying to become a professional runner in the middle of World War II here uh, in Europe. Um, so he had to he enlisted in the National Army. Um, but because of his status as a runner over the years was given more and more leave to train and he took his time to train. Um, he took that opportunity by the horns and one of the most famous things about him and what made him and this story so revolutionary was his ability and willingness to experiment on himself and become an innovator of training. And this is the part of the story where we want to go through Emil Zadapek's training and how it had an impact on running to this day. And he is basically known for some incredibly quirky training habits. And it is said sometimes that he uh, invented interval training. This isn't quite factually correct. He did not invent interval training, but he was seriously a leading innovator and revolutionized it. And um, he used it to transform running. And uh, he basically, his philosophy was that he was convinced that the secret of running for him was to learning to run fast. And he was a really good runner and he could run quite endlessly. He had great endurance and aerobic capacity as we know now. Um, and he, a, his quote was, I already know how to run slow. Um, but he developed the interval training system to teach himself to continuously run fast repetitions with short, 
recovery jogging. And the, the key point there that I really like is the recovery jogs because in running, uh, it is fine to have stationary recovery, but he was really big on recovery jogs. And that's still a very big theme among running groups to this day is, is the recovery jog, forcing your body to recover while still running slowly and forcing your body to adapt to actually recovering quickly while still running. Look, he almost took fartlek running and interval running and combined them. That That's kind of what he started to do. And And the second thing he did really well was a lot of people did short sessions of intervals and and that was their session, but he, he made them into endurance sessions. So he was doing uh, endurance, um, you know, high intensity, tempo, <laughs> and some recovery all in the one session. And and, you know, that kind of goes against all the scientific research that, that we've sort of grown up with in the modern day. But but he was just throwing, you know, almost all of the, the vegetables into the soup pot at the one time and seeing what, what happened. And and uh, what happened was he, he was almost unbeatable at one Olympics. At the, at the time, it was, you know, really com- interval training wasn't absolute commonplace. It was known, but it wasn't commonplace. And at the time, to train for the 5,000 or 10,000, which were his pet events, you would run 5,000 meters or you'd run 10,000 meters. You do that consistently. And he really broke that down and his intervals into uh, interval amounts that added up to that 5K or 10K. We know now that that doesn't necessarily have to be true, but, you know, he would start with five, an example session of what he would do is uh, a famous session of his was he would start with five 200s and that was his speed work. And then he would do 2400, which is still that, you know, upper speed work, but um, he was doing, you know, if you're doing 2400s, you can't possibly do them sprinting pace. Uh, and then he'd finish with five 200s again for that speed work. And uh, that session became really famous of his because he didn't just keep it there. He ended up increasing that amount of 400 work to 40, 50, even higher, 400 repetitions, which is just an insane amount. And that took his ability to sustain race pace um, at that level to a whole new degree and would allow him to be such a champion across 5 and 10K. I did hear, George, that he did do 100 400s once. Um, and, <laughs> and I don't know if that's actually true, but... Just think about that. That's ridiculous. I, I saw that as well and I couldn't verify it anywhere. But, you know, if, if, if it's out there, then we'll, we'll, we'll pretend it's true because it's a great story. Um, <laughs> but what you said before is spot on. The, the mix of training he was doing, um, he, he, this is the quirky habits that he had. You know, he thrived on, on making things hard for himself and challenging his body and forcing his body to adapt and that adaptation principle. And uh, when he was in the army, he would train at night and wear his heavy combat boots because he was almost wanting to do strength training and get strength in his legs uh, while doing endurance running. Um, and also he found that uh, he had less chance at night when he was training to twist his ankle or injure himself when he was in his combat boots compared to wearing white running shoes. Um, but he did a whole bunch of things that uh, we ended up finding out. You know, he, he, he would run on the spot when he was um, standing still on duty in the, uh, in the war. He would run on the spot for hours on end just to try and keep his fitness up. He would, um, there's, a, there's a famous story of him uh, running on the spot in the bath in the bathtub when he was doing his laundry for an hour. Um, what did you say? It was like a like a, an old version of a fir- treadmill. Yeah, he said he was, he was the first inventor of the treadmill because he was already doing that in the bath. Um, um, moving his clothes around underneath him um, while he was jogging on the spot, and that was kind of the precursor to the treadmill. Yeah, he would uh, do things like he was trying to. He knew he was trying to increase his lung capacity, so he would run as far as he could while holding his breath. Um, and so, yeah, he really took all these methods of training to a whole new level, experimenting. And some of them are just 
um, absurd and some of them are still sound principles to this day. And the point of the at the start of the episode that we made was how much of an innovator he was. And when you look at it now, what his training was made up of was long running. You know, he was doing regularly uh, hour and a half, two hour long easy runs in his combat boots. <laughs> um, not always, but sometimes. He was doing this this training at lactate threshold, you know, improving that lactate threshold marker, which obviously they didn't know what it was then, but these, these 20 times 400 and 40 times 400 at, at approximately his race pace. There's no official, there's not many official records of what kind of pace he was running, although there is some journals that said he was running 67 to 75 seconds, which again is at the time is, is about that um that race pace, that 510k race pace. Um, and then he used to have that speed work in there as well, which is that top up VO2 max work where he would, he would do 150 to 200 meter sprints. Um, or even sometimes he would do 20 times 100 meter sprints, which was revolutionary for a middle distance runner. So he was kind of hitting all areas without knowing exactly why it was working. I, I do love that because, you know, as age groupers, we, we want to bring our whole kit bag with us. For example, if if we were asked to go on holidays and we had to select, you know, two things, we, we would stand there and go, but I want all seven things that I've got. You know, I want to I want to bring recovery. I want to bring tempo. I want to bring high intensity. I want to bring endurance. I want to bring sweet spot. These are the things that, you know, I want to be a part of my program. So, so you know, you don't want to have the, the theory that do everything and you should be okay. That's not what we're saying. It's just important, though, that that you, you're not missing out on any aspect that can improve you. And and I think his theory was good, and it, it paid dividends because you know he ended up breaking three world records in three events at the Olympics. Um, so you can't get any better results than that from. And he was not to know that this was going to be successful. He 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 was just experimenting on himself and trusting in his process. Um, but but yeah, what you're saying is true. He, he, he was an innovator in in just different methods of of training principles that 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 had everything in it. That's the key thing what we're trying to say. And we were laughing about some of the lack of science uh, behind behind some of his methods because again, there's not extensive uh, uh, records of exactly what he was doing, but there are records that indicate that. You know, there was one time where for five days in a row he ran 40 400s in the morning and then 40 400s in the afternoon, um, the same sort of session, all with 200 jog recovery. And we just know that that's not effective training. You know, that's not <laughs> – that's not. Um, we don't know exactly what he – That's right. Go, the thing yeah. we don't know is how hard he was running them. He could have ran in the morning. He could have ran 70 seconds in the morning. In the afternoon, he could have been doing a minute 10 for those 400s. And it, it, even though it reads on paper that he's done the same session, the intensity is different. So. I can't imagine. Well, we don't know for sure, but the body's not going to cope with that five days in a row. It's just not um, if you try to run that morning and night. So so we can't fill in the blanks. So um, we're just presuming that he varied the intensity. But what we do know is there are records of his total kilometers and he was running massive kilometers. Uh, again, the long run, the endurance run, the cornerstone of our programs now was still a key cornerstone of his his running back then. And he was running upwards of 150 up to 200 kilometer weeks, some weeks, which is um, higher than a lot of athletes even do to this day. Um, but that that is just interesting that yeah, back then we, he was understanding the power of these endurance runs, even if he was doing them in combat boots. <laughs> um, but that is some massive volume and, and we know the power of how effective that is for endurance athletes. 
Well, I did see some research. I think it was in his autobiography. I think it was 150 miles in some weeks he ran, and I was trying to I was trying to convert that to kilometres. It was well over 200k um, in some of his big weeks, and and again, we don't know the detail. You know, there's not a lot of he, you know, there's no spreadsheet of what he was doing. Um, he, he had a lot there's of no training notes. picks files. Yeah, <laughs> no, there's a lot of written notes that he'd taken, but they were all about just uh, time. How much time um, was he spending in his runs? And um, so we don't know the intensity, but we're not saying that you just run more that that'll be it. You know, it is a help to be aerobically fit, um, but the strength work that he was doing that was that was the thing that was you know. Obviously, running a lot in army boots is is really going to take its toll on your on your, your strength and conditioning. And when you get into a really nice pair of fast running shoes, and they didn't have very good equipment in those days, but geez, imagine the difference between running in those boots and then running in a pair of shoes. You'd feel like you feel like you just got springs in your feet. So over that decade, he continued to uh, make a name for himself in the way he trained and uh, the runners around that he raced against and competed against and that started to find out about his training were just shocked at uh, his ability to uh, change the way everyone was going about it because he was basically training harder than anyone else was. That's what it kind of came down to. And uh, I just love that there's a quote uh, from a runner at his time that said, before Zatapak, nobody realized it was humanly possible to train this hard. Emil is truly the originator of modern intensive training. And I just think the combination of everything he was doing just wasn't being done before. And that, that culminated in, in such a successful career once he gets to the back end of this decade. And um, I really want to touch on uh, his his pain tolerance and the fact that he was known for being so mentally tough and like I've mentioned already, he was known to train in crazy conditions and to be honest, some of the worst European winter conditions possible out in the snow. Uh, and some of the quotes that he said about this is just, it's it's the same theory as Ned Brockman, what we spoke about earlier with you know, mind over matter. Uh, and he said, there is great advantage in training under um, unfavorable conditions for the difference is then a tremendous relief in a race. I want to touch on each of these quotes individually because that is just such an important point for when if you've experienced it in training and it's tougher than it's going to be in a race, then the race suddenly feels good. And that's really important for endurance racing. You don't want to have the opposite, do you? You get to a race and it's harder than you've trained. That's a really bad feeling. If you, you start questioning yourself right from the outset, you're going far out. How am I going to cope with this? And I've got another, if you're doing a, a, an Ironman or a half Ironman or a marathon, I've got another two hours. If you're doing a four-hour marathon, I've got another four hours of this. And and that shouldn't happen because you should already know all that data and you should be able to run at the pace that's that's that you're trained to. But but if you're actually going to an event and you, you don't know any of this stuff and you find out that the event's harder than you've trained, you're in trouble. I even take this principle and apply it to um, my warm-up before races. And uh, it's the same whether it's a bike or running race and, um, you know, you do the same thing and you implore athletes to do the same thing when warming up for a bike race. And that's, you know, making sure you're doing some really hard efforts right before the race. And the last 10 to 15 minutes in the lead-up, doing some really hard 15 to 30-second efforts on the bike, they look like – yeah, hard, uh, hard. just put your head down efforts for 15 to 30 seconds and running, they just look like stride throughs. But I always find that if my goal pace is X in the race, I want to be I want to be building up my stride throughs to the last couple um, running 
30, 40, 50 seconds, sometimes a minute quicker than my goal pace of the run for 30 seconds because you're absolutely flying. You're basically sprinting. But then when the race starts, that pace that's a minute slower from that sprint you just did feels so much easier compared to I know that every time when I do my first stride, it's normally around that race pace and it feels really uncomfortable. And I go, all right, how am I going to hold this for 5 or 10K when I'm struggling for 15 or 20 seconds here? It's because your body's not warmed up. And it's the same thing on the bike when you do – a 30-second effort with your head down, you know, 150 watts, 200 watts or 300 watts higher than, you know, your goal wattage for the for the race. Uh, it's really uncomfortable, the first one or even the second one. But by the third one, you're a bit more used to it. And then when you start the, the race and you're holding a wattage 200 watts lower than that, it, it, in comparison, it feels so much easier. So many guys who have come to us and have seen our warm-up routine are quite shocked. They're saying, I'm exhausted before the event started with your warm-up. And and it's kind of laughable, really, because it is a it is a really proper warm up, and and you don't have any uh, question mark over your head as to when the race starts. If someone if someone if it's a bike race, if someone took off um, straight from the gun, you're in every good shape to follow. Whereas if you haven't warmed up properly, you're in bad bad situation because your legs aren't going to cooperate until maybe ten or fifteen minutes later when you know you feel like you you know that saying of oh, my legs. I couldn't feel my legs today. It was just shocking. And then all of a sudden, halfway through the race, I started to feel good. Um, and that's really about warm-up. And and you know, all the things you just said about the important things of warming up and doing stuff that's a little bit harder for short periods than the race is going to be. And when the race comes, whether you're a runner doing an 800 or a marathon, you feel like you've got this confidence, this aura of confidence because, boy, this feels really easy compared to what I was just doing 15 minutes ago. Um, and and that's the beauty of actually the same analogy of training, you know, as hard or as hard as it's going to be um, in the conditions that are maybe worse. Um, you know, you're trying to, you know, for example, riding your bike with training wheels as compared to your race wheels is a really good way of making the bike heavier, slower, um, having to push push harder to get the thing going as fast, um, you know, not wearing your skin suit, um, just wearing – wearing your normal clothes and, you know, all the little things that, that you can do in training to, to make it a little bit harder. Um, uh, you know, you've heard, ex- example, one of, the ex- one of the myths that they said was Zatapik would carry his wife on his back <laughs> as part of his training routine. Well, I think you, you told the story from the actual bi- uh, autobiography, was it? Or no, the biography. Yeah, the biography, sorry, autobiography. Yeah. Um, of yeah. that's, That happened once because she was injured, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but the point, the premise is still the same. And um, one of his other quotes is that um, when a for- when a person forces himself to do something over and over, then he certainly develops in ways more than physical. He said, "Is it raining? Is it snowing? So what? I'll go out and train. Am I tired? That doesn't matter either. If you do it once, you feel pain. If you do it a thousand times, it means nothing. Willpower becomes no longer a problem." And I just love that so much. And it's for him to have that wisdom to say that back then uh, and still apply so true now. And it's exactly what we're talking about. It's uh, it's just awesome. It's a driven athlete, isn't it? I mean, just like a lot of the stuff I've read about him, he had some gold nuggets of sayings and they've stood the test of time, you know, before races, in the middle of races, he would say things. After races, he would people would ask him questions and he would come back without – Without even thinking about it, you would say, um, people would say, well, you know, why do you do this? Why do you train like this? And he would have some gem come back. I, I can't remember half of the stuff that I've read <laughs> where yeah. he's just come back and it's put people in their place going, 
you know, basically because I'm determined and I love doing what I'm doing and I'll do whatever it takes. That was kind of his summary of every answer he had was uh, because I love it, because this is what's going to make me better and I'll do whatever it takes. Um, and if there's, if there's consequences with uncomfortableness, then, you know, as you have always said, be, uncom- be comfortable being uncomfortable, um, you know, they're the things that, that uh, he had his and his mantra. That was his philosophy. That was his whole drive. And it's no wonder he was so successful. Um, I'm sure there's other people in the world who've got that same, those same uh, capabilities who, who aren't reaching the same heights, but they're still a better human being. Uh, than they are before that if they've got this mindset that I'm just trying to be better, whether it's a better runner or a better person or a better dad or a better husband or mum or whatever it is, you just you just got this philosophy of I can do better with myself. And and I think this is one of the, the things that's so good about him is he he led by example here. And and I think we'll we'll talk about it later, but um he's such an, a really good human being. Uh, as well as a brilliant athlete. So I think we'll end the episode there. We've touched on his early life and and how he really trained to become one of the world's best athletes through that decade. And we now get into his first Olympic Games in 1948 and his next two Olympic Games, 1948 and 1952, and how he actually ended up going there. And he had a disappointing result in 48, which really drove him for the next four or five years. And uh, it's really exciting once we start talking about the actual races and results of what he was able to achieve. And that is enough for this episode. We have gone a long time. So that is part one of the Emil Zatopek story, the man that changed running and we'll come back in the next episode with part two. So we can't wait for you to hear that. As always, if you enjoy these episodes, the best thing you can do for us is leave a review or tell a friend, share it with a friend, share it with someone in the triathlon, cycling or running community that would be interested. Uh, That is the best way to help us spread the message of this podcast. As always, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.